0: Hi, it's Arlen. It's Monday, January eighteenth, twenty twenty-one. This is Martin Luther King Day. We are observing today at my company, Backstage Capital, so it is off. Uh, in the past, we have it's been a policy that you could take it off, or you could work on the day. It's your decision, or you could uh, serve, or you could do whatever you wanted uh, for to celebrate this day, and most years i would work because that's what i wanted to do and accomplish today i'm i strategizing and i'm working on uh things that will invest in me for the rest of this year and and probably my life in some cases and one of those things is this podcast so while i'm off at backstage and you'll see my away message if you try to email me today uh uh, releasing today's podcast was really important. So I decided to release the very first episode of Your First Million. It is still, to this day, the most listened to episode because of time, but also because of how uh, dynamic it was of a conversation with Dr. Pamela Jolly. Pamela, thank you again for kicking things off on this podcast way back in June of 2019. I thought the subject and what we were able to really uh, uh, peel back was so appropriate for not only today, not only this holiday, but this time that we're in. And uh, we talked a lot about how do you come back from a major tragedy and major catastrophe uh, uh, with the Hurricane Katrina. And listening back to this episode this morning just reminded me of how, how timely the conversation is still a year and a half later so do listen if you missed it the first time if you listen to it the first time I think you'll get even more out of it this time and whatever you do today I hope you enjoy it I hope it's fruitful I hope it's replenishing and it gives you the fuel that you need to take on the world I'll see you next time In this first episode, I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Pamela Jolly. She is the founder and CEO of Torch Enterprises, Inc., which is a strategic investment firm committed to minority business growth and development. She's assisted over a thousand entrepreneurs, national nonprofits, trade organizations, the federal government, foundations, and financial institutions. For 15 years, Dr. Jolly has been committed to developing data-driven strategies that lead to wealth as legacy in the Black community. I am blown away by this woman, and I'm so excited that she is on our first ever episode. Dr. Jolly, I met her in Philadelphia just earlier in 2019. She was sitting next to me on a panel for the opening of our Philadelphia accelerator at Backstage Capital, the venture firm that I've launched and manage. And it was a very exciting night because we launched this accelerator in four cities, including Philadelphia. You can learn more about that at backstagecapital.com. And she just blew me away. I was so excited to, to learn from her that night that I invited her to Los Angeles to record at my home and just dive deep as we could. And I actually, I think there's going to be a part two because we just couldn't get to it all. What I like about this interview is that we kind of cover a lot of topics. It goes places you would not imagine. The main thing I love about it is that Pamela is telling you and telling me, teaching us why it's so important for entrepreneurs and especially entrepreneurs of color to own the legacy of their wealth, and why we already own it, why it already belongs to us. I think that's very empowering, and I I wanted to share that with you all. It also starts taking a turn about midway through. I I would encourage you to listen to the whole thing because it starts taking a turn uh, where you wouldn't quite imagine it, and it's raw. This series is going to be raw. We're going to get into some territories where you might not imagine. And one of those is talking about religion as it relates to to wealth. Um, both religion and faith, I think, is, is the best way of saying it, because I identify as atheist, and Dr. Jolly does not. <laughs> She's quite the opposite. And so just, I wanted this podcast episode in this series in general to be accessible to everyone and for everyone to feel like they were part of the conversation, no matter what their their race, their gender, their orientation, their faith, or lack thereof. And this just very organically started uh, coming out towards the middle and end of this conversation. So if you are at all interested in how the dynamics play, how how you sort of keep your identity no matter what your faith is as you navigate business and wealth. I think this is for you as well. So yeah, listen in, I'll throw it over to Dr. Pamela Jolly. We met just a couple of weeks ago in Philadelphia. Yes. There's video footage of me. um, I think I'm leaving my body or having some sort of out of body experience. And even though I am kind of, you know, emotive, I don't usually have that type of reaction to something. It's Mm. just when it really, really hits the soul. And I'm sure it's something that you've been, it's a thesis of yours that you've been working on for quite a while. Let's talk about what that was first. I don't kick things off. Sure, sure. What was it that you were saying in that moment?
1: Yeah. So what I was talking about was that we as African-Americans are the only people in America who were first capital before we made capital. Mm Mm-hmm. And so um, when we look at business, it can't help but be personal. Right. And that we came over here on the balance sheet and that we are wealth. Mm. And we've been creators of wealth uh, from the moment we got here. And Mm. so the goal for us needs to become wealth creators for ourselves.
0: Yeah. And when you said that. We made you, uh, me, the audience, (laughs) (laughs) passers-by, made you repeat that several times because Mm -hmm. it just, it's something, you know, that I think we all feel. It's kind of like you articulated something that we know as we walk around Mm -hmm. as black people. We, We know that in America as we walk around. It just hadn't been said in such a clear, concise, empowering way that you said it in. I remember thinking, And wondering and wanting it to turn into a fireside. Mm. Because I wanted to know your background. I wanted to know what got you to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit, just the basics? Sure. What city were you born in? And a little bit about your family.
1: Sure. So I was born in Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania, right outside Philadelphia. I'm fourth generation Philly. Mm. Um, My mother was born in Japan. She was an army brat. And my dad uh, was born in Philadelphia, grew up in the Richard Allen Projects, and uh, they just raised me in a rather strict Catholic environment to, uh, the the two things were, don't embarrass me and show thyself approved.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you you took that everywhere. Yeah, I did. Everywhere. Well, it's working. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's working, okay. Yeah. And did you have siblings? Did you have siblings? I do.
1: So I have a younger brother, Vincent Jolly, and he loves. He lives in Philadelphia. We live a block apart. Okay. And he's in real estate.
0: Is he young? He's younger. He's a younger, younger brother. brother. Yeah, I have a younger brother. Yeah. Yeah. You had that older sister vibe. I, t- <laughs> yeah, I do. We, well, it's yeah, yeah. It's a certain seriousness that has to come. There is a deep sense of humor, I think, that comes with it because you have to. Right. But there's a seriousness that comes with being a part, not in every case, but I think I've met a lot of people who they were a third parent or a second parent. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it's it's interesting. My parents were in the picture window and uh, we were outside playing and someone had pushed my brother down. We must Mm. have been like really young. And my mom jumped up. My dad said, no, let's watch this. And I didn't even see it. I just felt it. Right. And instantly was able to turn around and knock that boy down, and, and so I've just been that protector. Like I love yes. him so much. I yes. love him before. I he's the one that taught me what unconditional love is. Yeah. Because there's nothing that that yes. man. He's a man now. There's nothing that he can do that would stop me from loving him.
0: Mm. Yeah, my brother is thirty something. I've I've decided not to exactly know how old he is because it just it's too much right. to handle. But he to me he is sixteen. Yeah, he is sixteen years old. He has children. Oh wow! <laughs> he has everything, but he is sixteen in my head, and he's still the the boy that I would cover with my jacket in a, in a rainstorm from the bus uh, to walk home. That's who he is. But he is definitely a grown man, um, and can make me laugh as much as anybody. I think,
1: and that's the transition though, because I have to fight not calling him my baby brother. Right. You know. Right. Right. But he'll always be that baby in my heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's like that's really cool that. That you have that relationship still, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they grow apart, and you know something happens. But it's it's just really nice. So that so it sounds to me, and you correct me here if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me that you had a, a loving family, grew up feeling protected, and as a protector, where where did you start understanding? When did you start understanding your blackness mm. and your value as a black person and beyond?
1: Right. So blackness came before value, and blackness came in third grade.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Tommy called me the N word. Yes. And I went home and called my dad one. Okay. And he just about lost his mind.
0: Okay.
1: And my mama said, Praise be to God, here's your African American flashcards. <laughs> Baby girl, you black. <laughs> right. And until then, I didn't realize that I was the only black person in my class. Okay. Um, but she gave me the flashcards, and I fell in love with us, like our narratives. And Um, That began this love of, hey, I'm a part of a tribe that isn't around me, but I'm a part of a special tribe and we did some big things. The value of being black, quite frankly, didn't really happen until I became an entrepreneur okay, and started getting hired by national black organizations and started to see customs and traditions, albeit not at a business size that I wanted to see. But they were there, and they mattered. Mm -hmm. And that's when I saw that we had to keep these things together.
0: Right. So then we'll we'll skip school for just a second, because I want to know, Mm -hmm. talk about that. Talk about being an entrepreneur and what that means to you.
1: Sure. I believe entrepreneurship is a call from God. Okay. (laughs) Um, The primary purpose of business is to build wealth. And an entrepreneur agrees to take on all of the risk. I believe there's an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. And when you're an entrepreneur, you're willing to set it all up, take Mm -hmm. care of others, take care of yourself and still hold the responsibility of fulfilling the purpose of business.
0: Mm -hmm. And then and so what was your first outing or what was what's the thing that sticks out to you the most?
1: Yeah, I was it wasn't my plan to be an entrepreneur. Um, I left. I'm 15 years old now in terms of my company torch. And it was I knew that there was something missing for us that we could do something to the size and scale of the business enterprises that I was blessed to work with. And I wanted to uh, identify ways in which that could happen. And I grew up in an environment, a corporate environment, where I worked under a fourth-generation banker, uh, Hugh McCall at Nations Bank. And he taught me growth through acquisition. I mean, he acquired over 78 financial enterprises. Mm. And I was on his transition team while I worked for him. And that's when I said, wow. So instead of starting it up, we could acquire And so TORCH stands for passing the torch from one generation to the next to build legacy wealth. I wanted to partner with my Hampton and Wharton classmates and acquire my parents' and grandparents' companies Mm -hmm. and take them to an institutional level so that we could be shareholders and we could employ our children and we could transform our communities and create the types of programs that would lead to wealth for more of us.
0: Yes. So that's wonderful because... Your family has a history of starting companies?
1: No. I'm fourth generation entrepreneurship, but my grandfather mm-hmm. um, inherited his company from his father. Okay. Um, my father was a computer programmer. Mm. My mother was an oncology nurse. Yes. And uh, I learned how to type my name before I learned how to write it. Okay. And I learned the important role of washing your hands at all times yes. <laughs> from my mama. Yes. Um, yeah.
0: What is your doctorate in?
1: Education. Education, okay. Yeah. So, you know, went to pr- private Catholic all-girls schools, K-12, through and then went to Hampton University and majored in finance and marketing. Mm. Then I became a banker for four years, and then I went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, majored in finance and strategy, and then went to work I uh, again, and then uh, launched my company 15 years ago, so for 2019, 15, 2004. And then the company got hired by FEMA post-Katrina. So I wrote the strategic assessment to rebuild New Orleans. Oh, is
0: that all? (laughs) Wait a second. What What'd you say? Say that one more time. We're going to have you repeating all long. What did you just say?
1: You know, New Orleans, you know, uh, the whole Southern Gulf Coast got hit by Hurricane Katrina. And I launched my company before that and really wanted to help black people and black businesses grow. Mm. So I worked with a lot of startups, Mm. um, but kept running against the same roadblocks. And so my mentors kept encouraging me to think bigger. So I tried to acquire two rather large companies and failed because mm-hmm. what I wanted was 51 to 55% of the capital mm-hmm. to be women and African-American. Yes. So that's why I love what you do, right. okay? And I love what you're doing and the outcomes of what will happen mm-hmm. from what you're doing.
0: Even even in the failures, quote unquote. Listen, the yeah. failures that lead you to insight because yeah. I failed big. Mm-hmm.
1: And so um, after I failed big, I went, came home and uh, moved to D.C wanted to do a black bank roll up. And that's when Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. And people were saying, Pamela, what are you going to do about Katrina? Now, I had stopped watching TV, because one of my companies that I tried to acquire was in media. And I was like, who is she? How do I help her? Yeah. And they were like, Pamela, turn on the dag on television. Yeah. And that's when I saw <laughs> How this. How do I help
0: <laughs> Katrina? Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And so what was really powerful about that was that I had never been to the Southern Gulf Coast. And this was a black community that had a federal mandate to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I thought mm-hmm. I could take my, my banker hat and my strategy hat, and I could really start to help in a big way. Mm-hmm. And while I did, I started to see more of the reasons why we weren't, rebuilding as fast as we would like. Mm-hmm. And I started to really notice that communities were businesses, cities were businesses, states were businesses. And if we didn't have that business acumen, it was very difficult for us to participate with equity in the business conversation. And so that led to really seeing how often in our community we get uber religious when we don't understand business and finance.
0: What do you mean by we get really religious when we don't understand?
1: We just gotta close our eyes and believe it's going to be okay. Mm. And we needed to have real business conversations about how we were going to rebuild, how you were going to rebuild your home, and how you were going to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, And while it wasn't as if we didn't want to be present in those conversations, I mean, we all are on different lanes on one road. Mm -hmm. You know, some of us like to talk about what it looks like and what it feels like. And some of us want to get into the deal and underwrite it. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of us want to just do it you know, and they don't quite know what to do, but they just want to do it. So there's different types of people. And the overarching assumption was that we we couldn't participate at that equity table. Hmm. And yet I was invited to do these focus groups for people. Yeah, I learned a lot in New Orleans. Like, you know, in New Orleans is the oldest inhabited place in the country. Yes. Black people were free before they were enslaved. Um, we, at this time of the storm, we had five generations living there. Three, right. We were three generations in for wealth and ownership. Mm-hmm. But the majority, which was not the majority of the population, but the majority of Americans that lived there were five generations in. Right. So it takes three generations to build legacy wealth and only one generation to lose it. Mm-hmm. So at the third generation, you're just almost there. It's a tipping point. So when the storm hits and you're not insured... And you don't have clear title. There's some issues with cash flow. Right. But when you're fifth generation, it's paid for and it's insured. So not only is the federal mandate going to rebuild you, so is your insurance claim. Mm -hmm. And so we were dealing with cash flow issues all over the place. What was it? your exact role? What was your task? So my first task was in Mississippi. And so that's when I underwrote, we had a billion dollar appropriation to do kind of short term fixes. Hmm. So I did about 400 million. So I had to evaluate the various different municipalities, Hmm. look at the last five years of their financial statements and determine um, where best could we put these resources Mm -hmm. to bring folks back home. And, I mean, that was what I, I mean, I was in a pit for 18 months working at Nations Bank with no windows, understanding how to underwrite spread. So I was like, yes, I can do this. This is your
0: thing. This was a a national tragedy, right? So this was an all opportunity. What was your take on it when, did you say, well, somebody's going to be tasked with this? Yeah. I mean. It needs to be someone who gets us? Or what was that? It
1: was the largest national disaster that America had ever faced. Yes. And it hit primarily black communities. You know, New Orleans was 87% African-American. The Gulf Coast of Mississippi is largely African-American. Well, largely African-American, but there are other pockets Mm -hmm. of very wealthy, affluent other people. And I wanted to be a part of the solution. I really Mm -hmm. saw this as an opportunity, not just for the people of the Southern Gulf Coast, but I saw an opportunity for black businesses across the country to come down, get a federal contract, rebuild, but do well while doing good Mm -hmm. and build wealth that could pass on for generations. And I wanted to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I didn't realize, and that's what my dad was saying, I had never been to the South before. Yeah. You know, and so and the only racism that I had ever really experienced was in Brazil, you know, and so.
0: Or in the third grade with Tommy. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) He got set straight, I I imagine. But
1: my grandfather had raised me to believe that, you know, race is an economic construct. Mm -hmm. Black and white don't matter if you understand green. Mm -hmm. And because my entire career had been in financial services, it was like I had this green cloak over me. Right. And so the things that I saw were new. Like, oh, my goodness. But not only were they new in terms of systemic, but I remember I talked to this woman, and she worked at the hospital. We were rebuilding the hospital, and I was like, you know, what role do you want to play? And I was giving her different options, and she was like, baby, I just got to sit on the white side of the cafeteria. Mm. Let's not go too fast. Right. And I was like, Okay. So I learned that it wasn't about how I saw it from my East Coast going down the Southern Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. You really needed to meet people where they were and rebuild with them, not rebuild what you thought was the best thing for them. Right, And that required some time and some trust building and some relationship that, quite frankly, I think people without a cultural lens didn't prioritize as much as they should have. Yes. And so I felt like I could do that. What ended up happening there um, Mm -hmm. as a result? Yeah. So, you know, as you know, when the storm hit, uh, most people, many communities were scattered across the country. And so they weren't able to be present
0: um, while a lot of decisions were being made. Yes. Well, I mean, I was... Born in Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. I lived in Texas while this was happening. Wow. Houston was where my mom was and so a lot of people you know went. To, most people I think went to Houston uh, The number, yes. when it came to numbers yes yeah so this was this is our backyard for sure yes definitely so it, it, there were two things that were happening I mean you had
1: five, you had five generations living in New Orleans so 87% were African Americans um, but 11% of them made under $11,000 a year mm-hmm. but how does that happen it's because you had those generations working together one pot of gumbo could feed everybody right from an economic perspective there was abject poverty but from a cultural equity perspective there was beautiful things that were happening riches riches upon oh riches it was true wealth from a level that a lot of people couldn't define mm. but coupled with that you had people who had never left new orleans it's kind of like when i lived in brooklyn there were some people who had never gone to manhattan right and so some of them who left were witnessing different things that they liked you know, and so it was a lot going on. It was so much happening, and as someone who was an outsider who wanted to be an insider for the perspective of helping to rebuild, there were just so many lessons. It was like drinking water through a fire hose. Mm-hmm. It really was. Mm-hmm. The ultimate outcome is that some communities rebuilt well, and some did not.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the for me, from a, a learning perspective and a business perspective. It does take three generations to build legacy wealth and one generation to lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you need business acumen.
0: How did you come to interview it seven thousand yeah. places? Seven thousand. Part of it was that you
1: know because people were so scattered, I went across the country and interviewed mm-hmm. various different people. So
0: this stayed with you. This wasn't oh, a, yeah. a gig. No, this stayed with you. It became, it became a driver for me. Yeah. Where, because. Katrina when Katrina hit
1: it was an it was a a natural disaster a couple years later in 2018 2008 you know the economic natural disaster happened oh yes so the same impact on the new orleans southern gulf coast happened across the country Mm. in african-american communities Mm. largely in african-american communities because you know our equity was being sucked out since really 2003 if we looked at it from the home equity lines of credit and a variety Mm. of different things so we were really getting hit and this felt very familiar right and I realized that if we could get it right in one place, we could get it right everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be a part of that team, as I call it, those Avengers, who could get it right. And so I went to seminary because our faith was so strongly tied to our finance. And so that's When you what say our, mm-hmm. you're saying... African Americans. In the past, that's been the case. Is Not even in the past, right. in the present. I mean, if we think about it, the most consistent investment that most African Americans make is in their tithes and their offerings. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about from a, a, a nonprofit perspective, we are the most philanthropic group of people in America. Um, There is one statistic that says two-thirds of our income goes to philanthropic giving. Mm -hmm. However, it's scattered. It's not concentrated.
0: So that's another point. Let's make that point again. Black people in America Mm -hmm. are technically and accurately the The most philanthropic philanthropic. people.
1: Yeah. But but from my perspective is once we organized in in a more concentrated way, we already have the giving spirit. But Mm -hmm. if we could put it in
0: fertile ground, Lord Mm -hmm. have mercy. Right. So I'm really excited about our sponsors for this episode, Digital Ocean. I spoke at their employee lunch a few months ago in New York City at their headquarters. And I was just blown away by their team, by their diversity in the room, by the community that they've built, the curiosity uh, of thought there. It was really, really fun and they are some really cool people. So when we partnered to sponsor and launch this podcast, I was stoked. Let me tell you a little bit about what they are and who they are and what they're offering us. So DigitalOcean is a cloud platform that makes it easy for startups to launch high performance, modern apps and websites with simple, predictable pricing, no gotcha pricing and a ux that developers around the world love you can stop worrying about your cloud hosting and storage bills and have more time to just focus on your business we all need more time that's not all they want to make it even easier for new businesses to launch apps in the cloud if you're a startup, don't miss out on applying for their incredible Hatch Incubator Program. Over 2,000 startups in DigitalOcean's Hatch have received amazing perks like a year's worth of free cloud infrastructure credits, special events, prioritized support, technical training, and more. Learn more about DigitalOcean's global startup community and apply for Hatch at do.co/backstage. That's do.co/backstage backstage tell me the the big picture and I know this is scattered but tell me the big picture here because now I'm seeing all these pieces coming together Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting if you had two minutes with someone yes and it was a group of people and it was it was a group of people who are black white everything in between I guess that's the way to say it what would you want them to know Mm -hmm. about the opportunity that they have today that we have today that wealth is a group process okay
1: and that um anyone can participate in it
0: yes if they want to and why is it important that black people brown people women have a part in this yeah why is it important besides it being a socially right Mm -hmm. thing to do Mm -hmm. and it, it is yes lucrative but is it overwhelmingly going to be more lucrative for the white man Mm. uh, compared to if he just went on his merry way and didn't include? I mean,
1: it's part of the American promise, right? Mm -hmm. We were based the bibliography of the founding fathers of America included many shared books. They had a shared bibliography. One is The Wealth of Nations. The other one was the Bible. But... For us to continue to be the shared narrative of what we have always been to a certain degree as Americans, Mm. everyone needs to participate. It's Mm. all hands on deck. And whatever statistic you want to follow, whether it's 2034 or 2044, where we become a minority majority nation, Mm. um, the minorities who will be the majority in America have a different relationship with money. And as a result, a different definition of wealth. Mm. And that wealth is much more collective And so in strategy, you have a first mover and you have a second mover. When we think about the white man, he was the first mover. You Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. he came here and just declared and decreed and this is what he got. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 400 years later, 1619 to 2019, we are starting to see, you know, this transition of power, transition Mm -hmm. of ownership. Because there are certain uh, mindsets that are retiring and transitioning. And so we've got to prepare ourselves to participate at a level that generations before us could not participate, but we now have the opportunity to do so. So when I think about what you're doing in terms of funding founders that often would be overlooked, you're disruptive to a asset class and an equity class that really does need to open their eyes wider and see what this is. Mm.
0: But not just for the other, for us as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yes. I, I do want to touch on that, and incredibly so. But because I know that a lot of people will be listening who are not African American, sure. who don't identify, and to them, and I've been, you know, we both of us have been in this sometimes, if they're not being spoken to, eyes are glazed over. I got you. This is this is an HR issue. This is a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to reach them because because they are first movers and because they do today, control things. I want them to see it's idealistic. It's kind of Pollyanna, but I want them to see why this is just a no-brainer. Well, you know, people with wealth
1: do two things: they own things and they cooperate. Hmm. And so cooper- people
0: with wealth you are a, a, a <laughs> you are a soundbite heaven. <laughs> people with wealth do, two, do things. two things. They own things and they cooperate, okay? And so
1: cooperation is a relationship. And so for me, if black and white don't matter, if you understand green, right? Mm. And Kelly Miller had this beautiful quote about capitalism. Kelly Miller was the first African American to attend John Hopkins PhD program and right. went on to be a dean at Howard University. But He has this beautiful quote that if you look him up, but at the end of it, it says, the open shop and the black man make the black man and the dollar one, Mm -hmm. where capitalism really is a way for equality for black people. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about black and white don't matter if you understand green. And green is about creation and creating wealth is part of that. White, black, whatever color you are, Mm -hmm. if we can do business together... Right. If we can stop getting caught up in this racist construct, which is really an economic construct, we could really get about the business mm-hmm. of our legacy. Mm-hmm. And the legacy is that America has been able to have, some would say, an unfair advantage to become a superpower in such a short period of time. And a lot of that had to do with its first assets, which were African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So if we remain assets, why can't we participate a little higher up the value
0: chain. Right. So, what happens if we do remain assets?
1: Yeah. So, if we do remain assets, our unique cultural perspective that cultural equity produces rapid return on investment. Mm-hmm. We're able to take the unseen and make it seen value quickly. Mm. And when you look at the creature comforts of America, from the stoplight to the blood transfusion, it shows that we can see things that other people cannot see,
0: and we can convert that into tangible evidence of, of reality. And go back a second, because what you're saying, the, the stoplight was invented, yes, by a black person. Yes, uh, I don't think I knew about the blood blood transfusion. Blood,
1: blood so trans- what was, was invented there? the actual blood transfusion out of John Hopkins. Yes. Um, Most Deaf did a wonderful movie Mm. about that. I mean, when you think about the air condition, the stop light, but also the stop sign, if you look at the major comforts of America, if not the world, that organize and structure our lives, you will find a black man with or woman with or without a patent that actually created it. Mm -hmm. And so... We've been blessed with the ability to see things before they actually occur. Imagine what would happen if we were able
0: to put that in a business model mm-hmm. and sharehold it. Mm-hmm. It would benefit everybody. I have this current conversation going with a very a, a white male billionaire mm-hmm. who is a, a friend. And I'm trying to make him understand why I invest in the companies that I invest in. Not the people. I think he gets that. But why I make such... Early bets.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So his his take is kind of okay. Yes to women. Yes to people of color. Yes to LGBT. I get that part. But why not more instantly recognizable, viable money making companies rather than? catching them earlier in the process, Uh, you know, I I try to tell them, you know, we're tilling the soil. You're
1: you're, you're repeating the success metrics of early stage VC firms. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you're, you're basically just, you are a second mover to a first move that generated tremendous wealth. Yeah. The other thing is that wealth is a matter of perspective. Either you see it or you don't. Right. And you're able to see things that other people can't see, which is why you are a good investment, because you can see things that perhaps other people can't see. I'm blessed to also work with billionaires. And one of them said, Pamela, you keep talking about wealth and black people. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. When I look at median income, I don't understand how you get to wealth. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, that's easy. Income is only 20 percent of wealth. There you go. Okay, let's talk
0: about that. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about that, because if this is about. Some people listening are going to are going to want to know how do I, as any background, but especially as a black person in America, how do I go from making a salary, maybe it's twenty thousand, maybe it's fifty, maybe it's a hundred, to being a millionaire As one factor in my life, it's sure. not the end all, but so
1: you asked about the research. The research resulted in what I call the narrow road, not even what I call it's called the narrow road. Mm. And that's what I use to help people develop a better relationship with money so they can define wealth for themselves. So how do we go there? The first step is a bigger picture. If you make twenty five thousand dollars a year and the average career is 40 years, you've made a million dollars top line. Yes. Now, if you can be about your business, you can build wealth from that. But if you look at it where, oh, I only make this and I only do this, but you don't understand that you're going to be doing whatever you're going to do for 40 years, you don't know how to create, build, grow, and Mm -hmm. expand wealth opportunities. And so it really is, for me, a matter of strategy. Like you really have to... Wealth is nothing new in America, but for too many, it's uncharted territory. So if it's nothing new, which means that it can be done from people of all income levels, then we got to figure out the strategy that works best for you, given these variables that you have in your wealth equation, mm. and it really does become almost that prescriptive, mm. and it's a matter of choices, which makes you, which makes me excited about life because I mean, wow! I mean, you can choose
0: well mm-hmm. and build wealth. And Do you so, believe in this? Uh, there's this argument about the Starbucks not having Starbucks every day versus. Having Starbucks every day. Like some people say that it's that separates the rich person from the not rich person. Yeah. You know, because I guess I was raised in a
1: Catholic private all girl school where I wore uniforms every day, mm-hmm. um, there's no one way to wealth. Okay. Um, often in the church, they say there's many ways to Jesus and one way to God, but you can get there however which way you want to but you need a plan
0: mm-hmm.
1: right mm-hmm. and so if you want to do starbucks what i tell people drink your starbucks but own starbucks stock Yep. right, right. so be the owner and not not just the consumer be the consumer and the owner yes and uh, if we just pegged our investments to the purchase patterns of whatever community you identify mm-hmm. with wealth could be created
0: and even go a step further Find the coffee shop owned by the black person or by the woman or by whoever you want to support, and 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 become their customer and become and ask their for their financial statements so that you <laughs> really? can understand. Well, I'm just I, I get a cup of coffee and ask them for their financial statements. Yes, that's what I do. Like I want to know. I want to know how far away are you from free cash flow? Oh my goodness! And well, profitability. I'm gonna try that and see how how long it takes for them to escort me. Out. <laughs> but I see what you're saying. Yes, so it, it's. I think uh, I'm seeing couple of, two steps, because if you're talking about, um, I, I imagine this is going to be a, a two-parter, three-parter, because we're going to get into it. <laughs> we're going to have to have another time together, because I see the two steps. The very first one mm-hmm. that you touched on, and I think is re- something that everybody can do right now, is that long-term, big-picture idea of what it is you want. Exactly. And understanding that you have to have that for anything that you do in the in the micro to work. So, yeah. So along the narrow road, I leverage a grandmother's quote, Bessie
1: Pearl Horn. It's hard to see the full picture when you're posing for it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we got to look at the big picture yeah. because seeing is believing. So yeah. when I'm able to show people like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I can do something with that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, well, what
0: do you want to do? So we start to really yeah. start to go down a road. To really start to What take if you're 50 or 60 mm-hmm. and you realize, oh, I heard this before, the 40 years is gonna happen. Mm-hmm. What can I do now?
1: Yeah. So, the first thing you need to do is really believe in your heart that it's never too late. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that you have to do the same thing that I said do. Step one is for everybody yes. look at your bigger picture. Yeah. Because you, anyone and everyone with a financial statement, is in business. Your business is about to retire if you're in your 50s. Well, how long does your business have to work, mm-hmm. right? And then what level of lifestyle do you want after that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that's where you can get strategic and creative because, you know, I worked. I work with banks. And one of the workshops that always hurts my heart is when, you know, we show the retirement that big, wonderful, multi-million dollar number that you need to retire. And everyone just, eyes go in the back of their head and they're like, I'm just going to work till the day I die. Mm -hmm. My mother is 72 and I was blessed to have a mom who made a significant amount of income and she did really well. In fact, she became the model for me to really help other people focus on retirement. But retirement is not just about having the money. It's also about having the connectivity. So everyone has this golden girls model, right? Mm -hmm. So, You can really be strategic and say, "Okay, well, where's my friends that I could build some economies of scale with and live with so I can reduce that big amount for my retirement and enjoy my life? Mm -hmm. So it is again, the strategy starts to happen and we get to become extremely creative Mm -hmm. and coming from a community like we come from. It's a beautiful
0: thing because we do have love for each other Mm -hmm. and a willingness to Mm -hmm. do what it needs to what we need to do that community for. you were talking about in new orleans that was their their wealth mm-hmm. before anything else yeah so talk about how you came to interview seven thousand mm-hmm. black black people in america so i praise god for linkedin
1: okay uh, <laughs> Um, uh, you hear my, that, LinkedIn? My mentor, uh, Bernard Klein-Vasink, uh, was friends with the founder.
0: Mm-hmm. and With um, Reed?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so he sent me an email, and I was working at Accenture at the time, and he said, um, sign up for this. It's going to be a really great thing. Yes. And so I've been a user of LinkedIn from the beginning. Yeah. And so I would just send little notes out to people about what I was doing, and I would ask them if they would have 10 or 20 people that they would think would resonate with what I was asking, Mm -hmm. uh, what I was, um, my research. And my research was connecting the dots between Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and then presidential candidate Barack Obama. And so our self-identified Moses to someone who said that this was the Joshua era. Mm -hmm. And so it was an existential exegesis of Joshua 1 through 12, the promised land. And so I had some very specific questions that really resonated with African Americans Mm -hmm. at a very high level. And so... Um, normally what would happen, by the time I got into person five, they were opening up their Rolodex, and they were like, baby, when you're done with this city, I need you to go here, and yes. I'm going to call them. Yes. And that's how it just really started to grow. So this
0: was about research and understanding, and now you have this treasure trove. Yeah, and as you started and as you went along, someone wanted to connect you to this person. That became 100, that became 1,000, et cetera. And then I spoke
1: on a panel at a 100 Black Men's National Conference, mm-hmm. and there was a woman pacing in the back. And I, I'm, I'm someone who colors within the lines. You know, My mom said, don't embarrass me and show that self-approved. Yeah. And basically, the woman came to the stage and with the microphone, and she said, listen, I've been going to these different conferences, and I've been praying about our community. And the Holy Spirit in the back told me that you, Pamela Jolly, have the answer for us. And I was like, thinking to myself, what? And so I'm nervous because I want to do right. Yeah. So I thought internally, I said, Lord, can I say what I want to say? Mm because I had five terabytes of data in my head and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But I audibly said it and everyone said, yes, say it. And so I spoke for like 30 seconds and this man jumps up and he looks at me like he's mad and I'm scared now. (laughs) Turns out he took me to his boss after the panel and that opened up a door for me to have a relationship with a very large bank. And they put me in front of just about every single national black Mm -hmm. organization in Mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. They also allowed me to use clickers to capture data about what people felt about the beginnings of the narrow road. And so that was when I was able to build a relationship. I was able to see cognitive um, Mm -hmm. understanding of what I was talking about. And so it was just really beautiful to be able to work with the Divine Nine and the Urban League and the NAACP Mm -hmm. and the National Council of Negro Women. And so it was all of these organizations that really held our cultural equity our social equity and Mm -hmm. our spiritual equity at such a level that um, continued to open the doors for me.
0: And let's talk about your book for a second. The Narrow Road. The Narrow Road. And when did it come out? A year after my daddy died. So 2015. Okay. Uh, 2015. So it's available now in in bookstores
1: across? It's available on Amazon and uh, Amazon looks at it as a textbook, so it's okay. quite expensive, but okay. if you would like it at a greater price, I'd go to com. There you
0: go. PamelaJolly.com. Go ahead and spell that.
1: P-A-M-E-L-A-J-O-L-L-Y.com. And then you can click buy the book and you'll get it at a much cheaper price. Mm.
0: And is it uh, on a publisher or do you self-publish it? I self publish. it. self publish. it. Yes. Wonderful. Do you take that with you when you're at speaking events and... and no, no. Okay, I don't. We're gonna talk about that after. <laughs> We're gonna have a conversation about that. Because <laughs> if I know something, I know the speaking. The speaking circuit. Okay. Okay. Um, again, this is just just part one, y'all. We're gonna have to we have to go and have a a, a second half of this because it's just too good. It's too good. <laughs> but I do want to touch on something and ask you about it because you've mentioned it a lot and I understand that faith is very important to you it's it's a cornerstone of mm-hmm. seems to me is a mm-hmm. cornerstone of what your your work and your life yes and what do you say to people who don't have that faith, mm-hmm. but you want them to hear your message sure. just, as, just as much?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm a theologian. Okay. And theology. So religion is what you do about God. Mm-hmm. And that's your business. Spirituality is what you feel about God. Mm-hmm. That's also your business. Mm-hmm. Theology is what you think about both. Okay. Right. So I can have a thinking conversation about what you believe and what you do in support of your belief. And it's not proselytizing. It's not converting you or even witnessing. It's just saying, do you believe in something outside yourself? And if that's so, then we can have a conversation about that, mm-hmm. and we can connect on that level. Mm-hmm. And it's because I look at things through a theological lens, regardless of what my religion and spirituality is, um, is how I'm able to have conversations of all different faiths and belief systems. Yeah. And several of my younger mentees, some of them will say, "Well, I'm an atheist. Yes. What do you feel about that?" I said, "It's really not about what I feel about it. <laughs> right? Right? It's it's about what you feel about." What you're doing and why you're doing it. Right. You know the pursuit of purpose. You can define it whatever it is. You can have faith in you, faith in God. You know, faith in this job, faith in the opportunity. Now, my faith is in God, but as long as you have faith in something, mm-hmm. then we can start to have mm-hmm. a theological conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: And when, do you ever wonder about atheists and because I, I identify as atheist? Mm-hmm. Do you ever wonder where they find their their inspiration and will and purpose? You ever ask and so wonder? It, was,
1: it was interesting in seminary, there were several atheists mm, really, yeah,
0: really what was what was that about? Uh, why were they there?
1: One of them said that uh, uh, if you want to undo what's done, you have to know how it was done, right, right, right. right, right. I think for me to answer your question direct, I let God be God all by God's self. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that there's no place that God is not. Okay. So however anyone wants to define it, Joseph Campbell, um, he wrote the book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mm-hmm. He went to a cabin with 5,000 books on belief and myth and came out saying whether you call him Jesus, Buddha, or whatever, it's really man identifying with God at a level in which he can accept it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I don't really think about people who say they're atheists because if I can connect with you I can connect with something that's mm-hmm. beyond us mm-hmm. like we feel something there's something there mm-hmm. whatever you name it whatever I name it that's our business right but as long as we can continue that connection I'm good
0: right okay yeah that's interesting probably the right way to go about it that's how you people hear you yeah they feel shut out and that's that's part of this is wanting so many people to hear our message our messages yes. And navigating, you know, how they're going to hear. Well, it's interesting because when I first started speaking, you know,
1: people were like, well, I'm not African-American. Can I be included? Mm. And I, it was really important for me, for everyone to understand that I'm not exclusive of anyone. Mm. I'm inclusive, purposefully Of people that are often excluded from the equity table right and those the people that i most identify with those who are excluded are people who look like me Mm
0: -hmm. and i
1: happen to be a black woman Mm -hmm. you know who loves my community so Mm -hmm. just like you want your community at the table so do i
0: it takes us all take one of our uh uh, pillars at backstage is it takes a village you know i can't expect not to have to explain myself to to gr- different groups of people, and it's Most definitely and, and that that's it's more enjoyable that way. And as someone who does believe in God, I would imagine I've talked to you know a few <laughs> in my day, and I would imagine that is that is an idealistic place too. Because if if we're all God's children, wouldn't we all want to uh, benefit from from this at the same time?
1: Yes, and to your point, in some cities, faith was an issue. Several people would say, "Pamela, I love what you're doing. I just wish." the faith thing wasn't there right. but the dissertation was the convergence of faith and right. finance and that's
0: your what that's your you authenticity yeah. that's you being you so you're not going to shut that down because someone it makes someone uncomfortable yeah, yeah.
1: but i'm not pushing it on anyone yeah. it's just yeah. what do you believe yeah. you know and define your belief and that's what opened the door to an understanding that oftentimes we assume we know what we want. We yeah. assume we know what we believe. But when asked to concretize it, it there's struggle. Yeah. There's struggle there, yeah. and I, and that's where the togetherness can come from. Like, can mm-hmm. we have a thinking conversation mm-hmm. about that? Mm-hmm.
0: And whatever you believe, you're right. I just want to know what you believe. Exactly. You know. Right. And people don't talk about it. People get real. It's money. It's faith, or the lack thereof those topics are really tough for some people Was it money faith sex and politics right? yes and politics money. i think we're good like every, yeah. everybody's talking about that <laughs> yeah. all right well uh thank you so much for this um i i, I took you around the world and and, and I however many minutes 50 minutes but uh I, I hope you'll come back and i definitely and, will and answer some questions i know we're gonna have uh, listen i appreciate it and I,
1: I can't thank you enough for what you're doing
0: thank you appreciate that yeah